Colossians chapter 2 and verses 13 to 15. For the sake of context, I'm going to read from verses 6 to 15. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for this account of what Jesus Christ did for his people to redeem his people in our calling to follow him, to trust in him, to hope in him, and not to be led astray by those empty deceptions and philosophies that would that would deceive us and lead us astray from a sincere devotion to Christ. Lord, please help us in this time. I pray that you would speak through me, that my words would be your words, and that your words would go forth in power and clarity and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 1446 B.C., an event took place which would radically alter the course of human history. It was an event with long-lasting effects and repercussions which continue to impact all peoples and nations to this day. It was an event that was meant to be remembered, and it was an event that was so significant in world history that it not only would be remembered by the nation it directly impacted, but was commanded by God to be celebrated by them throughout all generations. That event, which most of you have probably already guessed, was the night in which Israel was delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And that celebration was called Passover. And we can see why it was called Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And so turn with me there, and I want to read Exodus chapter 12 and verses 1 to 14. We can see how great this event was and remember why God told the Israelites to 
celebrate it. In Exodus chapter 12, it says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall take. You you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. As we see in verse 14, as the Lord speaking through Moses said, This day shall be for you a memorial day. They were to celebrate it and remember it every year, forever. Because on that day, they were not only redeemed out of slavery in Egypt by God's miraculous power, but it was also on that day that they, in a sense, became a nation. All that was left to to become a nation was to occupy a land. And then they would have all the characteristics of a nation. God had redeemed a slave nation from the world's greatest empire at that time while also destroying their army, the world's greatest superpower at the time. And Israel was to remember this great redemption by which they became a nation forever. And they were to do so by celebrating a feast which foreshadowed the greatest redemption that would come later. The redemption from slavery to sin, which would come through the Lamb of God, the King of the Jews, Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would die for his people and through his shed blood would save them from the wrath of God and redeem a people for God. And it is this great redemption through Jesus Christ, which the Apostle Paul writes to remind the church at Colossae of, so that they would understand it and live in light of it. And in this passage, we see 
three aspects of our redemption in Jesus Christ, which the Apostle Paul calls the Colossians, by way of implication, every believer who reads this letter to remember, to meditate upon, and to rejoice in. Three elements of our salvation. First, our condition before Christ. Then our conversion in Christ. And finally, our victory through Christ. First, our condition before Christ. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Our condition before Christ was that we were dead. Dead, lifeless. Yes, we had life. Yes, we could breathe. Yes, we could walk. We could do everything a living human being could be. But God says, that we were dead. We were dead in Adam. Because as God told Adam, as he warned Adam in the garden, as he gave him the mandate for creation and told him, instructed him about what his purpose was to be as a man created in the likeness and image of God, he told him, he said, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may Surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And here was the deception and the lie to Eve was that you will not surely die. And yes, as all deceptions contain a bit of truth. There was some truth in his deception because she did not immediately die. But when she ate of it and then gave that fruit to Adam, and because Adam was the federal head of the whole human race, representing the whole human race, he died spiritually. And because Adam died, we died as well. And we're dead spiritually. We are dead in our trespasses, as uh, verse 13 says in Colossians 2, that we, we show our spiritual deadness in trespassing God's commands, in, in not obeying His commands. Just as Adam did not obey, we do not obey. We do not come out of the womb obeying. We do not, um, we're not born obedient. We have to learn obedience. We have to be trained in obedience. Toddlers naturally sin against their parents and other children. You don't have to teach them to sin. They're good at it. They do it naturally. It's, it's, it's what they do. <laughs> They're sinners. <laughs> They're vipers and diapers. <laughs> it's what they do. We have to discipline them not to sin. And then we have to proclaim the gospel to them that they would be saved from their sins. And as we share the gospel with others, you know, we, other people may, may think that you know, we call them sinners because they sin, but that's not exactly true. People are not sinners because they sin, but they sin because they're sinners. 
It's because of who they are that they do what they do. This was our state. We were dead in Adam. We were dead in our trespasses. And and the parallel passage to this is in Ephesians chapter 2. And you can turn there and read this. As, As Paul writes to the Colossians and he's in jail, he's also writing the letter to the Philippians and, and the letter to the Ephesians. We don't exactly know which one came first or, or exactly um, how he wrote them, but there's a lot of parallels in these letters. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, and, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's no excuses here. We can't say... but I was a little bit better than that guy or that girl or, you know, I, I, I was raised in a better home. That may be true, but you're still a sinner nonetheless. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You're still dead in Adam. And worse yet, you're dead to God as an unbeliever in your condition before Christ. All those who are Outside of Christ, who have not come to Christ, you're dead to God. And this, you know, in a sense reminds me, and you've probably heard teenagers and young adults say this, and somebody upsets them, one of their friends or their best friends, and they say, you're dead to me. And it's in a sense that that's what God saying to the whole human race. You're dead to me. You can't do anything for me. You're not alive. You're not living. You're not thriving. You're dead. One commentator writes, he writes this, he says, So bound in the sphere of sin, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as to be unable to respond to spiritual stimuli, totally devoid of spiritual life. This was our condition before Christ, our deadness. We were dead. But second, we were unresponsive. Dead man can't respond to anything. He's dead. Can't raise his hand. He can't walk an aisle. He's dead. He's unresponsive spiritually. He's unresponsive morally. He's unresponsive intellectually. He cannot respond to God. He's dead. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says... The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It takes the Spirit of God to awaken our dead hearts, to uh, take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, to remove the veil from our eyes, to see the world as it really is, to awaken us, to quicken us, to receive the gospel, to receive spiritual truth, and to respond in faith and repentance. God must do a work. As God told the 
uh, prophet Ezekiel in his vision in the valley of dry bones. And God said, can these bones live? They're dead. They're dry. They're useless. Ezekiel said, you know, Lord. You know. And in his vision, the Spirit of God breathed life into them. This is what needs to happen in order to, for a, a spiritually dead person to respond spiritually, that the Spirit must come into them. Our condition before Christ was that we were dead, we were unresponsive spiritually, we were unresponsive morally. And, and it's not that unbelievers do not have any morals or concept of morality, but their concept of mor- morality is skewed and... and they, they dodge the moral standard of God. They make excuses for it. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. And you can turn there in this um, uh, comprehensive, systematic uh, discourse or treatise on the gospel, which Paul writes the the church at Rome, to the Roman believers. And as every good evangelist does, as we're called to do, we need to lay out the condition of mankind first before we give them the solution. And so he, he writes the condition of fallen man in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, and he writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What the Apostle Paul says, that they are without excuse, they're... uh, uh, in the Greek, unapologetos, without a defense. Meaning that at the judgment seat of Christ, they will not have a defense. Because God, as Psalm 19 has said, has declared His glory in the heavens, that day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And so, even as, um, you know, some uh, skeptics concerning the gospel and evangelism would say, well, you know, what about the indigenous tribesmen out in the jungle away from any gospel impact? What about them? They've seen the stars. They've seen the sky. They've seen God's handiwork. And so at the seat of judgment, they will be without excuse because they have suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. They've, they've pushed it down, so to speak, so that they could continue in their sins, so that they they didn't have to respond to the moral law of God, to His holiness. They are unresponsive spiritually, they are unresponsive morally, and then they are unresponsive intellectually. 
Ephesians 4 says this. Ephesians 4, verse 17 says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Because they are spiritually unresponsive, they are morally unresponsive, and they are intellectually unresponsive to the law of God. Their hearts are hardened, their hearts are callous, they are darkened in their understanding. They are futile in their thinkings. This is every person before Christ. This was us. Until the Spirit of God came upon us. Our condition before Christ was that we were dead. And that we were unresponsive. But also that we were separated. We were separated from God. He says, Paul says in Colossians 2.13, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. As we learned last week that circumcision was, in a sense, a separation. To be uncircumcised, you are separated from God. To be circumcised, you are separated unto God. It was a symbol of that separation. We were separated from God. We were dead. We were unresponsive. John Calvin, in his commentary, he writes this. He says this. In this manner, this passage will correspond with Ephesians 2.11 where it is said, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He goes on, he says, taking it metaphorically, there would indeed be an allusion to natural uncircumcision. But at the same time, Paul would here be speaking of the obstinacy of the human heart in opposition to God and of a nature that is defiled by corrupt affections. We are uncircumcised in heart. We we were separated from God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. For those of us who, it's probably all of us, are of Gentile descent. We were far off. We were dead. We were unresponsive. We were separated. We were separated because we were uncircumcised and because we were unholy, ungodly. We did not know God, we did not want God, and we could not seek God. Matthew Henry, he comments on this in his commentary. He says this, A state of sin is a state of spiritual death. Those who are in sin are dead in sin. As the death of the body consists in its separation from the soul, so the death of the souls consists in its separation from God and the divine favor. As the death of the body is the corruption and putrefaction of it, so sin is the corruption or deprivation of the soul. 
As a man who is dead is unable to help himself by any power of his own, so an habitual sinner is morally impotent. Though he has a natural power or the power of a a reasonable creature, he has not a spiritual power till he has the divine life or a renewed nature. In other words, we must be born again. We must be filled with the Spirit. God must reach out to us. God must do a work of salvation. That's why it's called salvation. Because we must be saved. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot reach out. We, we, have, we haven't the ability nor the desire. God must reach out to us. He must save us. And so as Paul tells us and, and writes to the Colossians of this great salvation in Christ, of reminding them of their great salvation, of their great redemption, of how great it is and how glorious it is, He must first remind them of their condition before Christ. And then second, he reminds them of our conversion in Christ. Our conversion in Christ is he goes on to say that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul wants the Colossians and he wants all his readers and and all believers who would read this letter throughout the ages to remember our conversion in Christ and to understand it, to dwell upon it, to meditate upon it, to glory in it. And so he explains how we were made alive with Christ. We were united in Him. God made us alive together with Him. These concepts, these symbols of death and life, of burial and resurrection, of spiritual death and spiritual life, of eternal life. Paul writes to the church at at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, and and, and he addresses issues which they are um, wondering about concerning the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes this concerning our state and what Adam did and what Christ had done and what he will do. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21. He says this, he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That all die in Adam. We all die because of what Adam had done. Because as God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Um, Particularly um, implying spiritual death, but also pointing to a physical death. But in Christ, we will be made alive and showing us how we will be made alive by his physical resurrection. We will be resurrected um, spiritually as we come to faith in him and as we repent and believe upon him as the spirit quickens our dead hearts. We are 
made alive. We're united in him because God made us alive together with him. We died with him. As he died, we died as well. Those of us who are in Christ, we died with him. As Paul would write in Romans chapter 6, that, that, uh, in verses 3 to 7, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Not, not just talking about the, the act or the ceremony of baptism, but our spiritual baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is speaking of, that we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. When the Spirit came upon us, when the Spirit regenerated us, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He's talking to people who are living. And we read this as people who are living, yet people who in Christ have died in Christ and been made alive in Christ. Because God made us alive together with him. We were united with him. We died with him. And as we died with him, we were also resurrected with him. As Paul would continue in Romans chapter 6 and verse 8, he says this, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what happened in our conversion, that we were made alive together with him, we were united with him, and then we were forgiven through him. We were united in him, in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we were forgiven through him. We were forgiven of all our trespasses, every single one of them. And we all had a sin debt to pay, and sometimes we don't um, recognize it. We don't come to grips with it. We don't understand how great our sin was. And and even unbelievers know, in a sense, that they're sinners. It, It would be hard to find an unbeliever who says they do not sin. They are out there, but most people know they sin. And many believers um, admittedly say how much they sin, but um, oftentimes we don't know the depth of it. We don't understand the gravity of it. As you know, the Pharisees and the righteous, the self-righteous Jews would come to Jesus and try to, in a sense, justify themselves that that Jesus and, and his Sermon on the Mount had to get to the heart of the matter, the heart of the law, what the law was pointing at, that you have heard it said that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you that if you have hate in your heart towards your brother, you have murdered him in your heart. You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you if you lust after a woman in your heart, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And Jesus wasn't saying anything new because this was 
throughout the Old Testament. As God told Samuel that, that uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He knows all our thoughts. And this is why God said that you must, be, you must circumcise your heart to the Israelites. That there was deeper heart sins. It, it was the desires, the evil thoughts, the attitudes, the blasphemous and rebellious inclinations toward God. We, we sin in thought, word, and deed. But it's not just those trespasses. It's, it's not just the commands that we um, decide to break. But it's those good things which God has called us to do, which we refuse to do as well. As James would write, whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. These two categories of sins, those sins of commission, which God's clear law and we decide to break, and those sins of omission, that we omit the laws, we don't follow the laws that God has called us to do. And as, as Jesus and even Paul sums up the whole law in two commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments rests the whole law and the prophets, and not one of us have obeyed those. Maybe once. I don't know. And even if we've obeyed them externally, we have not obeyed them in our heart. And so all of mankind is condemned. But Christ came and He lived a life that we could not live, obeying God's law perfectly in heart, mind, word, deed, action, attitude, perfectly, so that He could be that perfect sacrifice for our sins and pay that sin debt. God is a, a perfect judge. And as a perfect judge, He must punish every single sin. He can't turn a blind eye to sin. Even if He forgives us, He can't just let it go. That sin still must be punished. Or else he's an unjust judge. And so someone had to pay that punishment for us. And that someone was the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was only he who could do it. Because every sin will be punished. And every sin will be paid for. And it's either punished at the cross of Jesus Christ. Or it's punished in hell forever. As you bear the wrath of God for your sins. But either way, sin will be punished. It will be dealt with. God's holiness and His righteousness will be upheld. And the greatness of the Gospel is that Jesus Christ has paid that sin debt for all who would repent and believe. All of our trespasses, past, present, and future sins, absolved, wiped away, he blotted them out. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Uh, quite literally, He blotted it out. He wiped the slate clean. He cast our sins into the depth of the seed never to be remembered again. We are forgiven through Him. 
And we are pardoned because of him. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We, we were pardoned in God's uh, courtroom because of Jesus Christ. Because of what he did. In his commentary, uh, Pastor Kent Hughes says this. He says this. He says, The Jews had contracted to obey the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 27 and 30, when they were on um, the, the mountains there, and, and Moses is reading the law to them, and they, they said, we will obey. And Kent Hughes goes on and he says, yeah, uh, the Jews contracted to obey the law of Moses, but then he said the Gentiles had countersigned through their consciences to keep the moral law as they understood it. He says in Romans chapter 2, the law that was written on our hearts. We knew that there was a law to be kept. And he goes on, he says, the burden of guilt was immense. The more they and we sinned, the more the record stood against us. The more that record was increased. The more that ledger was added to. And he says, Christ took the IOUs and nailed them to the cross above his head. Just as the charges were nailed over him by Pilate and then completely forgave us all. He became sin for us as 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sins were placed on him and he bore them. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we are healed. This record, which He nailed to the cross, this picture, which Kent Hughes kind of alluded to and described, we read at the end of the Gospels and and here in Matthew 27, 37, it says this, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And in that placard, we don't see our sins. We just see the charge which uh, Pilate placed against him, which was, in a sense, a, a political maneuver, a political jab towards the Jews. It, it was showing... Uh, uh, Pilate's hatred towards the Jews. He was mocking them in their king. But it's also showing a, a spiritual truth that Jesus is our king. He is our Messiah. He is our Lord. And he is the only one that could bear that penalty for us. And this is what, you know, the, the, the purpose and the process of crucifixion, it, it wasn't just uh, a Roman execution. It, it wasn't just capital punishment. The purpose of cru crucifixion was to send a message. It was to send a message that you do not mess with Rome. Either you get in line or you fall out of line and we will make an example of you. It was in a sense a, a ceremony, a process that began with the flogging and the shedding of blood, which would kill some. And then after that, the, the bearing of the cross, of, of taking it through 
the street to the place of execution so that everyone would see this is what happens to enemies of the state. And then being put up on the cross in that agonizing death in a sense that you were assigned to all the passers-by and it was on a prime avenue or a crossroads, a place where people came so that they would see and they would recognize and people would point out this is what happens to enemies of the state. This is what happens when you go against Rome. And then the charges of what you did would be placed on that sign so that everybody would see and they would fear and they would fall in line. And God, in a sense, took our sins and he placarded them to the cross. Jesus Christ nailed them to the cross. He bore all our sin, all our shame. Everything was placed upon him so that we could be redeemed. He was humiliated for us. He was shamed for us. He bore our burdens and our sorrows. And more than that, in a spiritual sense, beyond the physical suffering was the spiritual suffering that is a bit of a mystery to us, and we will never fully understand the depths of it, but in those three hours, he bore the full wrath of God for every sin that every believer would ever commit throughout all the ages so that God's justice could be upheld and he could also be uh, the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ so that he could show his mercy and his love and at the same time display his perfect wrath and vengeance and justice. As many theologians have said, all mysteries meet at the cross. All the attributes of God are displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants the Colossians to understand this. He wants them to remember this. He wants them to meditate upon this. He wants them to see this great salvation once again, to uh, reignite their affections, their thankfulness, their gratitude to understand more fully of what Jesus Christ had done for them. And in order to do that, he sets before them our condition before Christ and then our conversion in Christ and then finally our victory through Christ. That there was a victory. Verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who are these Rulers and authorities that we see. Where, where else do we see this phrase? And, and how did Christ triumph over them? Rulers and authorities. Is this just government officials? Is this just uh, Pilate and the centurion and the Roman soldiers? The ruling class of the Jews? Paul alludes to this in other passages, and he clearly explains it in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. He says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul explains the spiritual war that we um, engage in the, the spiritual battlefield on which we live and, and tells the Ephesians how they 
are to live faithfully within the spiritual war, to put on the whole armor of God. But to preface that, he explains that there are enemies. There are rulers and authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Behind every false religion, behind every cult, behind every false teacher, and even behind um, every governing authority, there's demonic power. There's demonic influence. When Satan fell, he desired to rule. And there is, in a sense, that he does rule. As Paul writes, he is the prince of the power of the air. And, and when he offered to Jesus Christ in the temptation, when he offered to Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of the world, there is, in a sense, that that was true, that he could legitimately offer that to Jesus Christ. There's true spiritual demonic forces of evil. These rulers and authorities and and. Jesus Christ disarmed them. And how did he disarm them? He, he stripped them as, as this, this verb would, would um, uh, allude to that. He stripped them down. He stripped them of their weapons and their armor. Which were their lies and their deceptions. He did this in our salvation through the Spirit that as He removed the, the veil from our eyes, as He uh, saved us, as, as we could see the world as it really is, we could start to see the lies for what they really were. Through, through salvation, through redemption, through the power of the Spirit, there's a sense that Jesus Christ disarmed our enemies. He stripped them of their weapons and their armor, of their lies and deceptions. He took away the fear of death and hell by which we are held in bondage, by which uh, unbelievers are held in bondage, as the author to the letter to the Hebrews would write. He writes what this power was that the rulers and authorities had. In Hebrews chapter 2, he writes this in verse 14. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This was one of the weapons which the devil and all the demonic powers had. The fear of death. The fear of death is what keeps um, one of the main reasons which keeps uh, unbelievers in bondage to false religions, to religions of works, that they, they strive to work their way to heaven because of the fear of death and hell. And that fear is only taken away through Jesus Christ. As John writes, perfect love casts out all fear. We only know that perfect love through Jesus Christ, through the love of God, displayed in the gospel, displayed in the cross of Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the love of God. Love is displayed 
in action. And the greatest act of love was the death of Jesus Christ, and, and through that act of love, He casts out all fear. He, dis, he disarms our enemies. He takes away the fear of death. He, he disarms them from their weapons and armor of deceptions and lies. He not only disarmed our enemies, though, He not only disarmed the rulers and authorities, but He also shamed our enemies. He put them to open shame. And, and, and there is a sense that he's alluding to uh, uh, enemy army and enemy soldiers being captured and being stripped. And, and, and they are, in a sense, when an when, uh, uh, enemy of war is taken captive and their, their weapons are taken away, their armor is taken away, all their tools of war are taken away, they are, in a sense, shamed. Because they cannot fight and they know they can't fight and they know they have to submit to their captors. And so they are shamed and he shamed them by disarming them. But he also shamed them by bearing our shame for us. Because he bore the shame of sin. But he also shamed our enemies, not only by disarming them, but by bearing our shame, the shame of sin, but also in despising the shame of the cross. As the writer to Hebrews would write in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, he writes this, he says, he says uh, telling the, the Hebrew uh, Christians, uh, the, the Jewish background believers, to not to depart from the faith, but to hold fast to the faith, to, to uh, look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And He's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is this shame? It is that whole process of crucifixion. And I explained that. That process, the purpose was to not only shame the person who was crucified, but to shame anybody else who had any thoughts of defying Rome. And it wasn't just the, the shame that Rome placed on the cross and those who would be crucified, which Jesus despised, but it was that shame which the religious leaders were trying to shame him for as saying that he's not the true Messiah, he's a false Christ, he's an imposter, but Jesus went to the cross as he would say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. He went willingly. He went joyfully for the joy that was set before him to redeem a people for him. And he went despising that shame, despising all the shame that was associated with the cross. He went to the cross and he says, cross, I am not ashamed of you. As he bore our sins, willingly, joyfully, to redeem us from our sins. He despised the shame of the cross. He shamed our enemies also by revealing them for who they really are. He, 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 as he stripped them, he, he exposed them, in a sense. He exposed their lies. He exposed their deceptions. He exposed... The, the futility of the fear of death. 
that is taken away in him. Our victory through Christ was such and happened because he disarmed our enemies, because he shamed our enemies, and because he triumphed over our enemies. He triumphed over them. He triumphed over them by destroying the works of the devil. John writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 3, and verses 8 to 10, he says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came, amongst other reasons as well. But he came to destroy the works of the devil. And then John goes on and says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. He destroyed the works of the devil in holding man in bondage to false religions, in redeeming us from our sins. He also um, destroyed the works of the devil by, um, in a sense, capturing his children and making them children of God by plundering his goods. As Jesus has this uh, uh, illustration of the strong man as you know, uh, the Pharisees are, are rebuking him or, or, or they're um, trying to uh, defame him, saying that he has a demon, that he's from the devil, that he's not the true Christ. And they say to him, Matthew chapter 12, they say um, that he casts out um, the demons by the prince of the demons, by Beelzebul. <clears throat> and Jesus retorts them. He rebukes them. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. <clears throat> but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He triumphed over our enemies by destroying the works of the devil by plundering his goods. And, and yes, there is a sense that um, some other believers who are of the all-millennial perspective will say that this is um, proof that Satan is bound, but we know that Satan is not bound because Peter says that he, roars about, he roams about like a roaring lion. He is not bound. But this is pointing to the fact that Jesus is plundering his goods. He's taking captive his children. He's He's uh, destroying his works, and he's leading away a host of captives. As Ephesians 4.8 says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He led us away. He took us, he transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to, from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. He did this in triumphing over our enemies. 
We have victory through Christ because of what he did for us. And this, <clears throat> this phrase, triumphing over him, and all the, um, <clears throat> all the allusions to um, warfare and disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame and what happened on the cross, what Paul is really alluding to, there's this illustration that he's using, and this is an illustration of a Roman triumph of what would happen um, when Rome defeated its enemies and when they had a successful conquest and as the Roman general would return to Rome and there would be a victory parade. And Paul is alluding to this victory parade, which was called a triumph. He's alluding to it. He's using it as an illustration for what Christ did. And in order to understand this better, um, I want to read this account of a triumph from the Roman historian Plutarch, who he describes this three-day triumph given to the Roman general Aemilius Paulus upon his return from capturing Macedonia. And he writes this. He writes this concerning this victory parade, concerning this triumph. He writes this as, Great scaffolds were erected in the forum and along the boulevards of Rome for spectator seating. And all of Rome turned out dressed in festive white. On the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statues, statues, pictures, and colossal images taken from the enemy. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians as, as newly polished and glittering the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposely with the greatest uh, art so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon graves, Cretan targets and Thracian bucklers and quivers of arrows lay huddled amongst horses' bits. And through these there appeared the points of naked swords intermixed with long Macedonian sarissas, which were pikes, long spears. All these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness that they struck against one another as they were drawn along and made a harsh and alarming noise so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy, they would not be held without dread. Following the wagons came 3,000 carrying the enemy's silver and 750 vessels, followed by more treasure. On the third day came the captives, preceded by 120 sacrificial oxen and their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garlands. Next, Macedonian gold, then the captured king's chariot, crown and armor. Then came the king's servants, weeping, with hands outstretched, begging the crowds for mercy. Next came his children. Then King Perseus himself, clad entirely in black, followed by endless prisoners. Finally came the victorious general, seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold and holding a laurel branch in his right hand. All the army in like manner with bows of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses according to the usual custom songs of triumph and the praise of Amelius' deeds. This is what Paul's alluding to. That what Christ did on that cross is what he did when he disarmed the enemies, the demonic powers, the devil, when he destroyed his works, when he led, host, uh, led 
um, to heaven a host of captives. Let us, in a sense, in a sense, uh, are we who were once uh, held in bondage to sin and to the devil. He, in a sense, freed us and led us captive. He rescued us. And then he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame. We have victory through Christ. And it's all because of what Christ did. But as Paul lays this out in verses 13 to 15 of Colossians chapter 2, and he shows the greatness of our salvation, beginning with our deadness in sin before Christ and our conversion in Christ and our victory in Christ. The whole point of this, the whole point of this is that we would not be led astray by deception, by philosophies, by asceticism, by legalism, by licentiousness, by all the temptations and the isms of our day and age. That we would not be deceived and led astray from the sincere devotion to Christ. That we would see our, the greatness of our salvation in Christ, our fullness in Christ, our sufficiency in Christ. That we would see what Christ did for us. And that we would live in light of that. And this was the point of the Passover as well. As Moses said to the people in Exodus chapter 13, explaining the Passover, the celebration, their redemption. He says, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. And though we don't see all the, the, the pictures and the events and the miracles in our salvation, it's even greater, far greater than, than all the miracles and wonders by which God uh, humbled the Egyptians and destroyed their army and rescued his people out of slavery. And we are, in a sense, called to remember that redemption, to live in light of it, to celebrate it, to glory in it, to rejoice in it always. Because in that, we will not be led astray. We will not be deceived. We will not seek to add to our salvation. We will not seek to find um, uh, pleasure or uh, fulfillment, even in spiritual disciplines. Or even in, in ministry exploits. Nothing can add to the work of Christ. Nothing can add greater fulfillment than what Christ has done for us. And, and Jesus, in a sense, gives this warning to his disciples. As they return, and he had sent out, um, if you remember, he sent out 72 disciples. Not just the 12, but an additional 72 and. Luke chapter 10, and they return uh, to him after all their exploits, after proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and the 72 return with joy, as it says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, and they say to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is a warning. This was a warning to those disciples, and it's a warning to us that we're not to find our joy in anything but our salvation. Yes, God does great works through us, but we're not to rejoice over uh, great works. In a sense, he's saying, do not rejoice over ministry. Do not rejoice over your acts of kindness. Do not rejoice over your Bible reading. Do not rejoice over your prayer time. Even in our day and age, we could not we, we, we could even say, do not rejoice over the fact that you were a conference speaker or that you've written books or commentaries or that you've pastored a church for so long. Do not rejoice over that. Rejoice over the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what we are to rejoice over. And if we constantly rejoice over that, over our salvation, we will not be tempted by lesser things, even good things. Even things of ministry. Because nothing can compare to salvation in Christ. Nothing compares to Christ. As John Newton wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Nothing can compare to that grace. Nothing can add to it. Nothing can take away from it. That is what we live for. That's what we rejoice in. That's what we hope in. That's what we look to. And if you don't understand what I've been talking about or what these passages allude to, then you need to turn to Christ and seek Him while He be, may be found and call upon Him while He is near to trust in Him and to hope in Him because there's no greater fulfillment. Nothing will fulfill you but Christ. There's, salvation is found in no other name but in Christ alone. And to Him we look because of what He has done for us. Heavenly Father, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, prone to leave you, prone to seek the shadow rather than the substance, prone to find our hope and our fulfillment in lesser things. Lord, help us to cling to Christ, to hope in Him, to trust in Him, to follow Him, to rest in Him, and to be willing to go and to do whatever you would have us to do. doesn't matter. We are in you, and if we're in Christ, then that is enough. There's more than enough. Help us to rest in that fact. Help us to glory in that fact. Raise our affections to Christ, and help us to honor him in all that we think, say, and do. It's in his name we pray. Amen.